Welcome to Staying at the Table. We are friends and community and part of a church called Cornerstone Christian Fellowship in Westchester, Pennsylvania. Despite our many differences, we aim to stay at the table, which means we don't walk away from each other when we disagree. We believe the best of relationship comes when we're willing to listen to each other, showing love even when we continue to see the world differently. In today's episode, we talk about embedded biases and why it's so important to continue to learn. Sit back and enjoy. Thanks for joining us. Welcome back to Staying at the Table. We're so glad that you've joined us today. And we are sitting with the Reverend James Beatty, Brian Chilcoat. Good morning, My or whatever time of day it is. Yes, yes. Myself, uh, Tracy Saletta, and also, as usual, the amazing Dave Moore, who gets here before us, sets up, stays after us, tears down. The guy is amazing. So we are heading into a series of our podcast where it's just going to be a mishmash. It's going to be the everyday conversations that might crop up or, you know, just thoughts that, random thoughts that we have. And today we are starting with something that I began to talk to James about, um, which happens often that he and I will sit down and have if we could just have a recorder with us all the time, we would have a lot of podcasts. Um, so, and I do this with Brian too, I actually have to say, is I began reading a book called Cast by Isabel Wilkerson. And basically her premise, and I've just started reading it, so this is not coming from having finished it, but where I'm starting right now is she said, you wonder why things happened in 2016, 2017 with the elections and all that's going on and the just the civil unrest. And quite honestly, we're continuing to see that. And she's kind of setting forth the premise that um, you want to know why this is, is because it's always was. And this is not something new. This is something that honestly has been in our soil and and what America has built on. So as I'm reading this, another thought came to my mind. And I have to continuously pick up books like this that challenge the status quo, especially the racial status quo, the racial um, tension or just race, I have to keep these in front of my eyes and continuously read. So I read a lot of mystical books, but I I also have to keep these kind of books uh, current and consistently in my, uh, in front of me. And the reason for that is because if I don't, I fall back into my own white paradigm. And I fall back into my own privilege. And I fall back and forget. Because my default is that I am a white, female, highly educated, uh, upper middle class, 
And it's easy for me to grow, um, just get blind and not see, to grow comfortable. That's the word I'm looking for. And so I I walked into uh, the room this morning and began to talk with James about this. And, and so that's what we're going to talk about today is that that learning that is so key. James, yeah. any thoughts? Yeah, so after we set the context for the book, one of the things we started asking is how do we see our own biases when we engage others? How is it possible that we can become um, more informed about the conditions and context of others so that conflict, agitation, um, uh, intense moments are reduced because when we take our own biases and context into someone else's bias and context, what is going to happen? Usually it's conflict. Usually and it's starting to get more violent and more vile and those are our problems. How do you handle this if you know that it isn't uh, an isolated event, that it is potentially on a massive scale? And what does that do to us when we understand that? And we started talking about, well, how do we currently, just the three of us, it was Brian, Pastor T, and myself, uh, mitigate our own biases? My approach was I love to travel, but I, when I travel, I'd usually um, love trying to go to other cultures and ex- experience the world through their eyes. Right? Take me totally outside of everything I'm familiar and then live, right? The types of food, the language, how you go to the bathroom, uh, you know, different traditions leading up to your meal. Then you can start to see your own traditions of how you approach food, living, sleeping, family. You can see yourself by being totally away from the comfort zones of yourself. And that's the only way you can see yourself. It's in, but then that pushes the point is the only road to understanding global travel. And I mm. think that's when Brian came in as well. Absent of that, what can we tell the church? Oh, what can we tell people about that? Right? Yeah, and Tracy's comment about that was step one is just awareness, you know, and I, I agree with that. Just knowing that you have biases, you have your own story, some of which has been shaped by forces outside your own control, maybe a lot of, maybe a lot of it. Um, we were shaped by a culture, by parents, by families, by our location in society, by where we grew up, the house we grew up, all those things have shaped us and gotten us to where we are today. So we have a a deeply ingrained set of beliefs and assumptions about the world um, that unexamined will end up in conflict because we naturally don't look much further outside ourselves than, you know, our immediate, um, our immediate self. Uh, So, you know, when we talk about caste and you know, um, being aware of our own biases, it's its hard, I think, and it takes a good deal of maturity to uh, begin to say, okay, I'm, I'm willing to be aware of the fact that my biases are not the best mm-hmm. or the only. Uh, 
mm-hmm. biases that are out there. And, um, and I've been shaped by those, and that's who I am. So, you know, my question was, and I don't know if there's a good answer, but maybe you have a good answer to this, but how do you maintain your authentic self shaped as you were in your upbringing, in your own life? How do you maintain that authenticity and make room for other people's stories and their their biases and their way of seeing the world? Yeah. That's a confusing one for me. I, I'm not sure how to balance those two things. Yeah. And, and Brian, if I was to engage that that question, I probably would look at it in two ways. One, there are some pieces that I have been indoctrinated into that maybe I don't want anymore, right? Which is a key observation, but you have to even acknowledge that in maintaining who you are, in air quotes, you have to also be comfortable with that some of that who you are you don't want anymore. And the example I, I give is this, you know, young children are naturally curious. You, you know, young parents uh, get this very well, that you spend most of the first few years of their life trying to tell them what not to do because they're running all over the place, trying to explore everything, touch everything, put everything in their mouth, uh, seeing, look and can't see. And they're just so eyes wide open. And then we put them in an educational system that drives that out of them yeah. every day, right? How, school, how classrooms are set up, how in many cases, even the definitions of wor- words, you're only given the one definition that you should u- utilize within the context of this room, of this culture, of this country, right? But that word outside of that culture and country also has a meaning. We're never taught about that. Yeah. It is this word, this meaning. Period. Period. So now when you engage another culture that has and utilizes that same word a different way, our response is you're wrong because I have a number of years of in an educational system that has told me that use of that word is wrong. And so most people then wouldn't see that as a bias. They would see their use of that word as a universal and someone is violating the universal. Bias. Yeah, what you're, it's such a brilliant comment, James, when you were, because you said this in the other room as well. What's so brilliant about that is we're indoctrinated into our beliefs. Mm-hmm. We don't recognize that. So our whole educational system is set up one plus one equals two, and that's the way it is, mm-hmm. and and that this is the right way to view it. Correct. And it's it's those embedded biases that were it, it's it's even more than that. It's a way of thinking, like that's what I think was so profound to me in what you said. We are we are taught a way of thinking about things mm-hmm. and and we're taught it from I mean even even as you're you're going to college and it's supposed to be a space where you investigate and learn and try new things no you know when I was getting my undergrad what I did was go what does the professor believe 
Absolutely. And then you write what the professor believes so that you can get an A. Absolutely. And if you write out of the lines, they don't give you an A. They they say you're so we're taught you gotta you gotta write according to your to your teacher. Right. Well, because some of the uh, the, the the signals we get throughout life are all in conflict. I don't know if when you came through school, but you could only get academic scholarships if you had a certain GPA. Right. That GPA is related to a certain number of A's. So the tip for a professor to tell me, uh, my grade doesn't matter. I'm going, does money not matter in a capitalist society? Right. When did that happen? I missed that announcement. But professors would say that, right? What they are, what they are focusing on is it's more important that you get the understanding than this grade. But you're like, well, wait a minute. It's not true. It's not true. It may be partially true, right? I do need to learn what's necessary uh, to have earned that A, B, or C. But it is a very different motivator when it also is connected to my scholarship. Yeah. It seems like there's, there, there's a process that we need to go through in order to reach that kind of uh, maturity to be able to uh, make room for other ways of seeing the world and maintain our own idea of who we are, our own self. Um, how how would you both say, what would it look like for somebody in an ideal world, you mm-hmm. know, uh, that would be able to achieve that kind of um, maturity to maintain an authentic self with their biases and their upbringing, their formation, all of that, and be flexible enough to uh, be generous toward other ways of seeing without giving up a sense of some kind of absolute or objective uh, reality that's out there. Because part of where we go with this is uh, relativism, which for some folks is a a bad word, but... um, is our are our relationships with other people with other stories does that make everything relative nothing's really wrong just different yeah i don't look at it that nothing is really wrong cuz i think there are evils in the world there are things that we look at and say that's wrong you know nobody or very well maybe people do but you know the majority of people look at Nazism and go, that is not, that is evil. But I want to go back to, you know, your your question about authenticity and your authentic self and how do you, how do you hold to who you are? And I think the question that I would have back that rose up for me when you said that was, what is my authentic self? Is it based on what I believe Or is there an authentic self within me that I can be comfortable in my own identity and in my own divine nature and in my own beauty that doesn't consist of necessarily what I think? And alongside of that, I would also say that there is an aspect of majority of my beliefs that I say, this is what I know today. This is what I know now. And entering into discussions, I hold that tension within me 
that because I land, I'm landing here does not make me right. Because this is the way that I'm seeing things, I recognize that there might be other ways to see these things. And I think the case in point is going back to reading these book, these books that I, I keep in front of me, you know, oftentimes by African-American authors, because that is not my understanding. That is not my purview. That is not my experience. And it's continuously proven to me every time I begin to fall asleep again mm. and have to pick up these books, which, which, as I said, I read constantly because there's such an embedded belief system that I hold. And, and so it's, it's holding my own belief systems loosely. But I do have opinion. I think we all know that. Mm-hmm. And I do have a place that I land. It's just I'm willing to hold it loosely. It, my identity is not based on my belief system. Yeah. And Brian, building on that, I think it's, we have to be on a, a journey of constant learning. Uh, so for wherever you started, where, you know, in terms of formal, informal education, the culture that you were in, if you're constantly learning more, and not trying to export your thoughts all mm, the time. Great point. You're likely to figure out where some of your biases are because it takes experience. It takes opportunities to actually see what you have not seen and, and, and to engage your brain into processing a topic that you at one point in time saw as settled, right? There's no, I don't think much about a table. The concept and what it does is settled. But if I go and see a, a totally different concept for table, a, a, a table that you would sit down and have a meal at, it, then my brain engages in a whole new way mm. and opened up to a whole new topic. But until I see the other thing, my brain considers it settled and I move on. Uh, even and I'll circle back to this and, and try to uh, put an example to it. When we talk about what is our authentic self without exploring that topic, your brain has considered it settled. But I submit to you, it is not. And how, what is an example? So I'm an African-American male. My settled, previously settled self prior to travel is embedded in U.S. culture. Well, what is that for an African-American male? Mm. What is it? Yeah. Right? And so I consider myself progressive and Western. Okay, but what is that? And what got me on this train of thought is when I went to Ghana and felt at home the very first time I landed. Wow. So who am I then? Am I Ghanaian? It is my authentic self Ghanaian mm. because I've been trained to be American. Mm. That's so these are the things when we about experiences in life that it takes engaging something else. So for you to even, for your brain to engage in a new way to ask questions about what is that thing that you thought was settled? And that includes you. You think you're settled. 
go out and experience life. And then you can see your allow your brain to engage in a different way. I love what you just said, and I'm gonna let you talk, yeah, yeah. Brian. But just that I was trained to be an American. Mm-hmm. We don't think that. We're just born. Mm-hmm. Here we are. Mm-hmm. But to think I'm trained to be fill in the blank. Mm-hmm. Fill. I'm trained to be white. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm white, but I'm trained on what that means. It's very profound to me. Yeah, our, our, our dog is trained to go certain places at certain times, and dinner time is at this time and that time. And uh, if I go back into my dog, which is a poodle, Bichon mix, a little grumpy Who yapper, attacks you when you visit bite, them. That's right. Uh, she way, 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 way back. She used to be a wolf. You know, all our dogs have come <laughs> from wolves. Mm-hmm. She is nothing like a wolf because her uh, development over hundreds of years has trained her to be a little poodle. <laughs> when she even looks different. Um, how do you uh, find the wolf in a little poodle? I don't know. But that's an interesting way of looking at it. And I wonder... Uh, how difficult is it? It's probably um, different degrees of difficulty for different people to decide to suspend their settledness. Because mm. I think that takes a bit of courage to say, uh, who am I really when I thought I had it figured out? certain amount of stress and uncertainty, which can be stressful for people. Mm-hmm. And yet, if we really are serious about moving beyond our caste problems. Uh, we all need to engage in that in some way. Yeah. Well, what, what it brings up for me, you know, is the question of, you know, when you're saying, who am I? You know, it brings up for me the, the question of, do we have to land? You know, do, mm. do we have to, do we have to land? Or can we say, you know, I'm in process and growing and developing my entire life until I until I leave this earth. Yeah, I think some people would see that as just exhausting and not worth the energy because it is. It's it's constantly checking your thoughts. You know, tr- pushing yourself out of that settled, complacent place where you just live off of your your training and your formation. So it's. Yeah, it sounds great. I mean, I think we all have made some steps down that road, and I think a lot of our people at Cornerstone have as well. Um, but how do you export that or make it make it accessible to people so that they are also willing and feel safe enough to do that? Yeah, it's it's hard because if the the key component that we're seeing that you need to have is experience, and so exporting an experience is hard. If you're not around a group of like-minded people that are trying some of the same things. Um, my, my daughter went to a summer intensive for dance and her biggest concern at the end of the uh, of the summer intensive was would others around me support the creative freedom that now I've been exposed to and want to build on? Right. That was the concern. We knew the techniques. And, and it, when when a lot of these young dancers leave these intensives, they, they, they're going to 
schools and going to um, dance centers where the technical training is top notch everywhere. That's that's not the issue. The issue is after you get the techniques, who is there with you to explore further? Who's willing to do that? And if you're not surrounded by a community to do, Mm. then it becomes an isolating exercise to try to continue. Um, It it may even feed into one of our beliefs from a Christian standpoint is that you do this thing in community. There's no way around it. We've tried to substitute community forever, especially now with electronic connections. It's true. But this is the one I dare say you will not replace. No. No. You know, I had this week somebody reach out to me from uh, attending a very large church within our uh, area. And this is a person in leadership. And they contacted me and said, can I meet with you? I have so many questions about inclusion and about LGBTQIA that um, I can't talk about here. Mm -hmm. And can I meet with you and or another leader to to just process this? And I think, you know, Brian, you asked earlier, you know, when we were having this pre-conversation and you said, where do you think we are as a church? And how are we doing? And I I think there is, it, and James' response was, it's a slow process. But I think we're beginning to help people navigate the possibility that it is not, you know, that things can change in the religious world. Mm-hmm. And that you can interpret the Bible differently and still be in community together. And you can have gray areas and live in the discomfort of not the absolute. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And to put a primary value, no, churches all have different primary values. And it's the one thing that sticks out when you when you um, encounter them. You kind of notice what's their main priority I think for us, we've really worked hard to make staying at the table a big priority and model that value. Um, And when we disagree, that's okay. We can still journey together. In fact, the disagreement is really what helps shake us out of our complacency Mm -hmm. and, and understand the contours of our own bias and formation in comparison with what other people might think or say. And at first, I think it's kind of shocking for some people. But we have this value we've worked so hard on. And you're right, James, it is a slow process. But I think we keep keep challenging, keep... Well, you know, think about what Jesus did in uh, his the teachings, the parables. A lot of them were just shocking to people Mm -hmm. because he... He told stories and, you know, um, made statements and communicated concepts that were really um, 
opposed to the systems, the social systems he saw around him. Mm-hmm. Um, we do, and we do that, you know. And I, I think about our own approach to the Bible, which you mentioned. Um, if we continue to look at the Bible as, um, you know, a settled, unbiased, pure source of information, we'll never move, you know, in our own. It's, it's not that. It's a book that's full of diverse texts from other cultures, times, places. It's foreign to us, and yet we've made it American, Western. <laughs> it's you know. so true. I don't know how we did that, but yeah. it's really not. It's, well, and it should challenge us when we read it. I hope at some time in the future uh, there is a discovery of the lineage of Christianity that exists through the Ethiopian eunuch. Mm. Because then that would help us to see what is westernized Christianity and all of its biases and flaws. Because then you'd have another one that has cascaded throughout history, has its writings, its following, its development. What was that like? Because to think that this, this eunuch who went home and told nobody after saying, I have found the one, doesn't make any logical sense. Right. He told somebody. And then if it's the one that you all have been looking for, nobody had questions. Nobody had curiosity. For generations, you're waiting on this. Uh, a respected official comes back and say, I found it. And nobody does anything. It's out there. Right. Yeah, I think our own social makeup or our tendencies socially have done us in, you know, because yeah. we've historically, human beings have had a tendency to consolidate, to simplify, to structure power in ways that everybody understands. It's mm-hmm. very clear. There's a hierarchy and a pecking order. And these are the, this is the reality that this group needs to acknowledge and, and live by. Um, and to go against that is almost, in a way, going against human nature mm-hmm. in some ways, just because we're so, we have such a, a gravitational pull toward homogenizing Absolutely. And, and being safe in this group. And in that other group, it's unsafe and they are not our friends, mm-hmm. they are other. Yeah. That's how I felt, James, with the New New Testament by Hal Tossig, you know, when. You know, he's writing Paul and Thecla, and he didn't write it. You know, he pulls these texts that are from the first century, mm-hmm. first and second century, early Christian writings that are more from a mystical, you know, and, you know, the, the Gospel of Mary, the Gospel mm-hmm. of Thomas. All of those, when I was growing up in evangelical—well, I wasn't growing up, but when I, you know— um, entered into the evangelical, you know, uh, movement, all of those were wrong, mm-hmm. out, mm-hmm. demonic. Well, they, they put a truth category on them yeah. too. They are not true. They're not true, right. And, and as I'm reading them and finding this beautiful side of Christianity that has always been out there, but it wasn't allowed in the box. Right. And suddenly you start reading these other texts and you go, oh, it's, wait, it's bigger. It's so much bigger than we think. 
and and it starts to bend. And again, we go back to bias, mm-hmm. right? When I first got saved, looking at all of this and and not even reading them, actually being afraid to read them. Like if I did that, somehow I was some evil sinner, terrible person yeah. to where I am now embracing these texts and and reading um it's just it's just it it changes the way that you view and it also for me helps to understand why there was a need for the physical Jesus because mm. if throughout time God had been trying to communicate with God's people and distorting it the way we have distorted things yes. i can see you know, my playful way of, of thinking about the conversation in heaven is like, I can't believe what's going on now. <laughs> we were very clear, very clear. Jesus, could you go down there and try to straighten some of this out again? No. The, right? Is these, right. we get so uh, potentially off course because we want to simplify it. We want to make it homogenous, even though. Everything upon the earth is so diverse and beautiful. The diversity of the planet that we have been placed in is miraculous. And then we want to make it all beige. Yeah. It's unbelievable. And it's really a a mirror that we hold up to ourselves. Are the things that we're thinking... um, mimic in the nature that we see around us. And what I mean by the nature is just the diversity uh, in, in how things fit together, right? That it, nature, it left alone, balances itself. And it also um, beautifies one another. What makes the, the yellow more uh, visible is the deep purples, is that contrast yeah. makes the other stand out always. But if you put yellow on white, you're kind of like, oh. Blends in. Uh. You're making me think of in the middle of winter with snow and a cardinal lens, right? Mm-hmm. They're their brightest in the winter. Absolutely. Summertime, they blend in. You're like, oh, there's a cardinal. That's nice. In the winter, it's like, there's yeah. a cardinal. Yeah. You know, it's it's such a, yeah. Yeah, I think we might be afraid of beauty, you know, to um, think that our own concept of safety is easier mm. or less frightening than to open up to beauty, the beauty of diversity. Um, and that's, you know, again, it, it was, a lot of us are driven by fear. I think it comes down to that, that we're afraid of what we'll lose uh, by opening the door to some other things that might be way more beautiful, but a lot more scary as well. Yeah, and and I think that's a great point, because I think that's theologically one of the things that keeps people from investigating and learning and growing and and being open to even different interpretations is fear. Yeah. Fear that I'm wrong, fear that I'm going to sin, miss God, and that God is punitive behind that to, you know, get angry with us for, especially for learning. Got, yeah, especially if you've got a group of people around you that 
you're afraid of, you know, that will enforce the rules if you yeah. get out of line. Yeah. yeah. So is that the way that we, we tie this in is to say, you know, when we look at our own biases, a way to open up is to think about the beauty that's in this different thing you're looking at. It, and by acknowledging its beauty, your beauty is allowed to shine even brighter. Mm. Right? As we engage one another and in, in who that other may be in its totality, resist the urge to create it in our own image because that may not be what it's intended. Ooh, that's right? great. That's a great final thought, James. Yeah, I love that. All right. What else can be said? Right, nothing. <laughs> we end there. So thank you again for tuning in today and for joining us in our random conversations that we actually often have when we're hanging out together. So uh, thanks for joining us and hanging out with us. And uh, take care until next time we meet again. Thank you, everybody. Have a great day. Staying at the Table is hosted by Dr. Tracy Saletta, Matthew Kistler, and James Beatty, and produced by Hear It Sound and Studio. Got a question or a comment or a topic you want discussed? Email us at adminccf at gmail.com. We'd love hearing from you. And don't forget to subscribe to keep up to date with new episodes coming out. And if you're feeling kind, leave us a review on whatever platform you listen to podcasts. Find out more about staying at the table at cornerstonewestchester.com. Cornerstone.